I do have a passion for diagnostics because if you get the diagnosis right at the beginning, then things down the line go much better. Um, it's you know fewer interventions for patients if the diagnosis is right up front. It's less cost to the healthcare system if we get that right from the beginning. From CTSI, this is the Products of Pittsburgh, a show about the people in Pittsburgh, innovators, scientists, community leaders, and the remarkable stories behind how they came to be and the work they've produced. I'm Mike Flock. On the show today, we catch up with Dr. Sarah Wheeler, Assistant Professor of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh. The clinical laboratory is at the heart of hospital systems because it's responsible for the majority of medical diagnoses and decisions. Lab tests can detect and confirm diseases, which helps inform individualized treatment plans. This real-world application drew Sarah to clinical chemistry and ultimately landed her in Pittsburgh, where today she is both a translational researcher at the University of Pittsburgh and the medical director for multiple UPMC testing labs. Her expertise in diagnostics, though, may be rivaled by her talent as a competitive dancer. When Sarah returned to Pittsburgh in 2017 to become a faculty member, it wasn't the first time that she came back. Where did you grow up? Where are you originally from? I don't know if the Pittsburgh vortex is a common phrase for you, but uh, I've often heard about the Pittsburgh vortex. Once you move to Pittsburgh, you're stuck in Pittsburgh. And um, I actually lived here until I was about five. My dad was a mining engineer. And then we moved to the West Coast to Washington State, where I grew up and spent most of my time. But I have some extended family in the area. So when I was looking at graduate schools, University of Pittsburgh um, was top three for the biomedical research I wanted to do. So I came here for that and then got resucked into the Pittsburgh vortex. So I am kind of an ultimate boomerang story. Ironically, um, an interesting tidbit, I was born in Mercy Hospital before it was UPMC Mercy. And now I, I oversee the clinical labs there. Now that's a small world. <laughs> it's a very wow. small world. Yeah. So you said your dad was a mining engineer. Yeah. So lots of geology in uh, his background. Any of that rub off on you in terms of interests? Not necessarily in rats, but definitely in kind of general scientific method. So always looking for evidence and trying to make sure that the data is there and that I don't allow the things that I'm working on to be clouded by what I want the story to be, but that I really look at what the data is. That was definitely a part of growing up with an engineer. So when you were growing up, let's say middle school, high school, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do in terms of a career? Yeah, uh, I really wanted to be a civil engineer and work in developing countries on their infrastructure. It was definitely what I wanted to do. I was an international baccalaureate honors in high school and took Spanish. So I had some Spanish, was thinking I would work in South America and also took chemistry. And when I got to the university my first year, I decided I really hated calculus much more than I thought I did. So civil engineering was maybe a poor choice um, and actually found myself tutoring a few of my contemporaries that were in the dorms with me in their chemistry work and realized I missed chemistry and went back to chemistry. Sarah graduated in 2006 from Brigham Young University with a degree in biochemistry. She also minored in Spanish and spent a couple years volunteering in Argentina which has proven to be valuable as she continues to this day working with South American countries. Sarah was interested in chemistry, but wanted to be able to apply it to patients and the community and engage in translational research, which is what brought her back to Pittsburgh, where it all started. 
She would go on to receive her PhD in cellular and molecular pathology at the University of Pittsburgh, and then completed a combined basic research and clinical fellowship in metastatic breast cancer and clinical chemistry. Sarah was becoming an expert, and in that process, learned some things the hard way. Was there anything during your PhD that you found particularly challenging, things you didn't anticipate that were difficult for you? Uh, yeah, yes. So three, three years into my PhD, I guess first, I was super lucky to be in the laboratory of Jennifer Grandis. So she was an MD, head and neck surgeon, still, still is, um, although she's moved to UCSF. And she was an absolute powerhouse. When you would meet with her, she was a complete whirlwind of, of energy and enthusiasm and new ideas. And I started work in her lab on um, a variant of epidermal growth factor receptor. Um, we had to construct models because it wasn't preserved when you tried to take it out of people's tumors or try to take people's tumors and grow them, you would lose this variant. So we had to construct models. And three years into my PhD, we found out that the cell line that we've been using to construct our models had been contaminated with a different cell line that was not head and neck cancer, which was what all my work was on, um, but was actually bladder cancer, which does not contain this variant. Oh, and wow. so we were back at ground zero. We had a, a paper that had been submitted um, and reviewed that we had to come back. They gave us three months to redo all the work in the paper and get all of, all of the data again. Super lucky, Jenny was very supportive, provided me all the resources I needed to be able to get the work done. But it was definitely a moment when you go, is it, is it worth continuing this if, like, if all that work was just lost? Um, but we did continue it. A uh, year and a half later, I finished up my PhD, partially because the environment of that lab was so great that there were other junior faculty members that had me help them on their work so that I could also kind of keep publications going and expand my, my interest. So once you received your PhD, what did you do next? So when I finished my PhD, I thought that I wanted to go into industry and wasn't really sure kind of what the next step for me would be. So there was a postdoc uh, in a lab that I had rotated in during my PhD who had uh, become pregnant at an older age and had to have a lot of genetic testing done. And she noticed that the signature on her genetic testing was signed on the interpretations of her genetic testing was signed by a PhD, not an MD. And so she looked into it and said, hey, there's this whole field called laboratory medicine. Uh, you should look into it and see. And so I looked into it and I heard just about the medical genetics, which is um, PhDs who do clinical training and then do genetics interpretations. And I looked at that and it didn't seem like a great fit because I'm a chemist, not a geneticist. And But then I found out that there was the bigger umbrella of laboratory medicine and they did do chemistry. And I met Dr. Octavia Palmer, who's still here, who does amazing translational research and is a clinical chemist. And she told me about laboratory medicine, where um, after you get your PhD, you do two years of clinical fellowship, possibly a postdoc as well, and then um, sit a board exam to be certified to practice clinical chemistry in the clinical labs. So I did my training at the University of Pittsburgh as well as postdoc at the same time. You decided after postdoc to go into industry. Yeah. Um, How did that happen? <laughs> so as I, I finished up my clinical fellowship and my postdoc and was trying to decide what to do next. Uh, that was also kind of on the heels of uh, Theranos. So the the big Theranos thing was during the boom time of that, not during the best time <laughs> of that. Um, and that that is very specifically my field. Diagnostics on on blood products is clinical chemistry. And 
uh, I felt like there was there was a company that approached me for a position um, that had some really amazing technology that I was excited about, and they wanted to to also start a clinical lab so I could be involved in research, working on these cutting edge diagnostic tests to bring to patients, as well as starting a clinical reference lab for them. So it it seemed like a no brainer, and it was. I worked there for a couple of years and really really enjoyed that. After two years there, we had kind of some new assays going and lots of exciting things happening. Um, it did turn out that I didn't like managing people, to be honest. It was not my favorite part of my job, but we all have parts of our job we don't like. So, But there was an opening at the University of Pittsburgh. They called me to see if I would be interested, and I was very interested. And I missed kind of the more direct patient contact that I had had as a, a fellow when I was uh, finishing up my clinical work. And there were also kind of some new things that I wanted to work on in my research, some translational things that it was just difficult to do from the industry side, but I could do from the kind of academic medical center side. We also, when we were looking at it, we lived in Washington, DC, so we did industry in, in DC, which is really great, but ended up being a little farther from family than we had anticipated. So there was also a draw to the city as well. In 2017, Sarah returned to the University of Pittsburgh as an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology, while also taking on the role of directing diagnostic testing for multiple UPMC laboratories. A major focus of her work is to improve current diagnostics and develop new diagnostics in order to provide better patient care. One recent example is a computational project on HIV testing. Early detection of recent HIV infection represents a critical preventative approach and could help decrease the spread of HIV. Conventional HIV tests provide accurate results, but it can take hours and sometimes days to receive them. So with Drs. Michael Shuren and Alex Starr, Sarah entered the Pitt Innovation Challenge in 2019 and won an award for the project HIV Detective, a rapid HIV test that can detect early infection at the point of patient contact with healthcare providers, which allows for real-time interventions. Soon after the team got started on the project, though, there was a new virus and a pandemic looming. Sarah's expertise in diagnostic testing became a critical asset to the Pittsburgh community. Two weeks before the pandemic came to Pittsburgh, we realized that we needed to have antibody testing available. So infectious disease serology or detecting antibodies uh, against foreign pathogens uh, is one of the, the clinical areas I oversee. And, most of my diagnostic work kind of focuses on infectious disease serologies. And so usually when we implement a test, it has to be FDA approved. So a company has worked on it, they've vetted it, they've done a clinical trial, and that shows up in our lab. We make sure it works. We see how we're going to use it in our patient population, make sure it's appropriate for our patients, do any tweaking we need to, and then we implement it. Instead, we're knowing that we're going to have um, COVID in Pittsburgh at any time now, and that the only real therapy that we have available to us is convalescent plasma or blood products from people who have had COVID and then have recovered. That's our only kind of hope that might be a helpful intervention as we try to get a hold on it, which means we need to be able to test people's plasma for that. So we worked with a few vendors that we already knew, got some test products from a test assay uh, from Germany and had to do extensive internal workup, kind of our, our own internal clinical trial to get that up and running before we even had cases to try it on. 
we had a lot of work to do. And then when we finally had cases, every case that came through the doors, we made sure that we got any remnants that we could so that we could validate this um, to be able to use for convalescent donation. So we ended up being, as far as I'm aware, UPMC was actually the first organization in the U.S. to offer antibody testing. Only kind of within the same week, several of the large organizations went live. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we ended up being the first because of kind of all of the work of uh, the entire laboratory medicine team in doing that. The COVID-19 pilot program that CHSI had launched you know, in March of 2020. And then, so I know you'd received some support through that mechanism um, focused on the pediatric side of things. Could you elaborate a little bit on kind of what that work entails? Once we made it through the first wave and we had these assays that, that we could actually use and there weren't widely available assays, because I oversee Children's Hospital and I work with the ID physicians there, there were two ID fellows that noticed that we, we weren't doing a lot of N NP swabs on kids um, because we didn't have enough test kits to test everybody. And so we were really only doing symptomatic people, which made us think that perhaps we were underestimating what the prevalence was in children. So we got together um, to try to figure out what is the zero prevalence in children, um, particularly as at the time we were trying to figure out should kids go back to school? Um, should we keep them doing homeschooling? Some decisions need to be made about that. Are kids really driving infection because they tend to run around and, you know, talk to a lot of people and, you know, climb on their parents' laps and things like that? They're, it seems like they could be a, a serious source of driving infection. And so we had a lot of kind of outstanding questions around what was happening in kids and there weren't any pediatric studies happening. So kids were included in a couple of the large NIH studies, but they really were a very small portion of that population. And so these remnant specimens from kids that were seen at UPMC Children's and already had to have blood draws taken. We had a few exclusion criteria, obviously, if they, they weren't under the age of 18 years, we did not include them, but uh, also kids that had actually been in the community is really what we were after. And we did two windows. We did one during a red, red phase, lockdown phase, and one during yellow phase. And then we also uh, specifically made sure we did a subgroup analysis on kids that were immune compromised because we see a lot of immune compromised kids at children's and we wanted to see if we, we knew in adults that we were seeing worse outcomes with like transplant patients and other people that have had um, immune dis disorders, but we didn't feel like we were seeing that in kids anecdotally, but we wanted to see what was the case. What we did find is that it appears that kids don't have the same or as robust of an antibody response as adults. So detecting antibodies in kids actually may not be as accurate looking at for looking at prevalence rates as doing PCR, because our current understanding is we think their immune system takes care of COVID so quickly that they never have to build an antibody response to get rid of it. And looking at kind of the subset of, of children that had immune dysregulation, they didn't really do any worse than kind of healthy kids, which was really great news because that was not what we were seeing in the adult world. So that was very, very reassuring um, for for us and for parents um, and great to share. What has been challenging for you? I mean, you're very much involved in the testing and having a role in helping support testing. Is there certain aspects of your work that have been difficult to kind of maintain during this time? I think uh, one of our challenges has been that COVID is not the only sickness happening in the world right now, not the only thing that we have going on. And I think this is this is this has been a problem for all healthcare workers and healthcare systems is that 
we have to to manage the COVID workload, which is on top of our existing healthcare workload. So I think that has been a challenge kind of universally. I don't think that that's in any way special to me that, you know, all of the, for me personally, all of the COVID antibody testing and the COVID antibody research that has been very important to do has been on top of the other work that I have to do um, and that healthcare systems and physicians and nurses and um, all of the people that support us being able to treat sick people or keep people well, either way, it's the same, same thing that they're experiencing. Healthcare workers and the many individuals who support healthcare systems have been in high demand. For many, it has been a difficult and overwhelming time, particularly for those on the front lines putting themselves and their own families at risk in order to help others. Fatigue, depression, anxiety, burnout. One large national study found that 42% of doctors reported being burned out. The poll came out, though, in January 2020, before the pandemic. The toll on mental health that the pandemic has taken cannot be understated, and it goes beyond healthcare workers. Reaching out to friends, family, and neighbors as a quick check-in could spark conversations that relieve stress and help cope with challenges everyone is facing. Fortunately, the tide is turning on this devastating virus, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Finding time for personal interests and hobbies will be important to restoring some level of normalcy. And for Sarah, that means dancing. Outside of the work that you do, any particular hobbies or or interests during your free time? Yeah, uh, so not really during COVID, I'm gonna be honest. 2020 was not the best year for hobbies for me, but um, definitely when we are allowed to interact with human beings, my husband and I are actually professional dancers. So we we do partner dancing. We compete internationally and we teach. We do a dance style called West Coast Swing that's danced to contemporary music. And ironically, when we first determined that we needed to do antibody testing, I was at a competition in Washington, D.C., and spent like half the weekend in the hotel room working and then the other half down in the ballroom um, dancing. So it is not, that was like the last time that I really did dancing, um, but we're very much looking forward to, to getting back to that. That's cool. How did you get involved in dancing? Is that, like, how did that come to be? When I first moved to Pittsburgh, I didn't know anybody here and I didn't have any friends. So, you know, you meet people at work, which is, which is great, but they're all, sciencey people. And so if you want to meet some other people, you have to look for ways to do that. And um, I got involved. I decided to try dancing. A couple of people that I met were also part of the dance community. And so I went with them to a few things um, and then found that it was a really great stress outlet, a great way to meet people kind of outside of my daily sphere. And, you know, obviously a good way to, to stay active. So it kind of checks a few boxes of socialization and activity and, after my first year, I went to um, this new dance that had come to Pittsburgh called West Coast Swing. And I actually met my husband in that dance class. And that has solidified our dancing addiction. It was the West Coast Swing. <laughs> it was. <laughs> so you met your husband through the dance. What does he do for a living? Um, so he was in information technology when I met him. And actually, when we made the decision to come back to Pittsburgh, he decided to pursue a PhD uh, in the information science department. So he's getting his PhD in computer vision, specifically um, in information science. And occasionally I snag him to help me with some of my projects, too. <laughs> of course, you have to. Yeah. If you can select one word to describe yourself, what would that one word be? 
That's a hard question. <laughs> I kind of feel like I should have something, some like deep word. Um, but I think that probably just spunky is probably the word that gets like used on me the most in no matter what part of my life it is. Spunky. All right. So you bring some energy to what you do? I think so. Yeah. In your career, do you see yourself 10 years from now being in the sort of diagnostic space or do you see other areas of interest you feel like you might explore? The diagnostic space is definitely where I see myself being. Nobody's uh, career is ever linear because I definitely did not see this particular place 10 years ago. I do have a passion for diagnostics because if you get the diagnosis right at the beginning, then things down the line go much better. Um, It's you know, fewer interventions for patients if a diagnosis is right up front. It's less cost to the healthcare system if we get that right from the beginning. And so I am hoping to shift more into computational modeling and um, computational ways to assess our existing diagnostics. We've done a remarkable amount with biomarkers with next-gen sequencing. We have the ability to to really dive into biomarkers, but my sense is that we can continue to chase biomarkers, but we also have so much information that we're currently not using. So instead of trying to find necessarily more tests, in some cases, I definitely believe that there will be more tests that are going to be be helpful and there will be more tests that we need to, to track diseases and things like that. But I also think that there's this wealth of information that we're not tapping into. And if you run just a basic metabolic panel and a CBC on a patient, which is kind of baseline, somebody comes into the hospital, you run these two things, you have a whole list of data and there's so much more that we could mine into that than we currently are. Um, Also to provide decision support because there's so much information coming at our clinicians now that being able to integrate that into something that's a little more um, human interpretable. For me in the next 10 years, that's, that's where I'd like to kind of expand a little bit more. Another area that has been getting some of my attention lately is how we can use that data to actually reduce health disparities, because a lot of the health disparities that that we see can, to some extent, have some mitigation happening through clinical testing, because we can get an earlier diagnosis to get earlier intervention. I had the opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Palmer on um, two pieces where we looked at how the clinical laboratory actually can play a role in, unfortunately, exacerbating health disparities, but also the opportunities we have to intervene and reduce health disparities. And one that's gotten a lot of attention this year is removing the race correction factor from estimated glomerular filtration rate, which is uh, basically we use a a common blood uh, component to assess people's kidney function. And that happens through a very complex algorithm And one of the parts of that algorithm involves a race correction, um, specifically for black. And that there is a lot of controversy around using that race correction, what assumptions are in that race correction and the lack of data to support that. And we are actively removing the race correction at UPMC, but also um, we are just starting the project to look at when we remove that, what, what is the outcome effect on patient care? Do we see, which is what we are hoping to see, that we get more patients appropriately assigned to the transplant list, more patients appropriately receiving the interventions that they need, or not receiving medications that might cause renal compromise. So it sounds like a kind of an ultimate goal for yourself is improving diagnostics for improving better care for everyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, I want everybody to get perfect medical care. 
and the perfect medical care that they need and not overburden the healthcare system and keep people well and do it uh, kind of prospectively. But I, as a, an individual, cannot do that. Um, but in, in terms of diagnostics, I, I would love to see this being more proactive about, about people's care. Sarah Wheeler, PhD, Assistant Professor of Pathology and Medical Director of the Automated Testing Laboratories at UPMC Mercy and UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and Associate Medical Director of Clinical Immunopathology at UPMC. That's our show. Thank you for listening to the Products of Pittsburgh. Be sure to check out our website at ctsi.pit.edu slash podcast to hear more episodes as well as learn about CTSI programs and services. I'm Mike Flock, along with Zach Ferguson. Until next time on the Products of Pittsburgh.